Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn to Hebrews chapter 6 where we were just a minute ago and we're going to study this passage together. Beginning in verse 4, we leave the section that we studied last week that contained the third of five warnings that God gives us in the book of Hebrews. And here in verses 4 through 20, we're urged once again to continue in the faith that we have come to for salvation, the faith in Christ that we first came to. Verses 4 through 6, um, they, they have caused more controversy amongst uh, theologians, and in church, they're actually, they're the reason for some denominations, uh, than probably any other passage in the New Testament. Uh, th- see, there are many who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior who hold that verses 4 through 6 teach that we can lose our salvation, pulled out of context, like out of this chapter, out of, out of this book, and, and um, if not balanced by other scriptures that plainly, plainly teach otherwise, uh, I suppose that somebody could come to that conclusion. But what we're taught here in verses 4 through 20 is actually just the complete opposite. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, it, it's actually a strong argument for the eternal security of the Christian, it, for the perseverance of the saints. And uh, it ought to give us who have trusted in Christ the Savior, it ought to give us a strong, a strong assurance of our salvation. And I pray that it will this morning. In fact, let's pray that it will this morning. Father, as we come to your word, I pray your Holy Spirit, who is present in the lives of every single person who's trusted in Christ as Savior, I pray that he would illuminate uh, this passage of Scripture to us. You have given it to us. It it is a gift. Um, You want us to live in a strong confidence that um, we are yours, And that we are forever yours. That is what the blood of Christ bought us. That's what we've been singing about all morning. That's what we just heard sung. I am so thankful that it's not my works, what I do and don't do, that holds me fast. But it's he who holds me fast. I pray every single one of us would leave here with that strong confidence um, that that translates into a victorious Christian life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The very first thing that God wants us to learn here in what's taught in verses 4 through 6 is this. Uh, Our salvation, it is secured by Christ's work. By Christ's work, not not ours. And we're given a couple of impossibilities here in verses 4 to 6. One of the best ways, I think, to avoid error in understanding this passage is to read the first four words of verse 4 and then immediately jump down to verse 6. And that's because what's in between there is a parenthetical uh, phrase, a long one, an important one. We'll get to that, but let's do that. Starting in verse 4, let's read the first four words. For it is impossible, and now jump down to verse 6. What is impossible? That if they should fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. That's impossibility number one. Now, who is it impossible for? That's just 
described in verses 4 through 6. Well, now we got to go to that parenthetical phrase in verses 4 to 5. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. That's who it's impossible for. Uh, Now, for those who profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior, but believe that a Christian can lose their salvation, this is one of two passages in Hebrews that they will go to in an instant to defend their incorrect belief. And I will agree with them on on this one point, that who is described here in verses 4 and 5, it it sure seems to fit the description of a Christian. Now, there there are some who believe like we do here at Dublin First Baptist that No, our salvation is rock solid, secure in Jesus Christ. It is an eternal thing. There are some who believe that what is being described here is people who um, are just professing Christ. Someone who may have heard the gospel, you know, in fact, they've been coming to church, but they never truly received Jesus as Savior. They never truly repented and believed in what Christ has done for them. They never truly been born again. But the only problem with that is who is described here in verses four through through five, um, it's a Christian. Especially when we compare all these phrases, once in light and tasted of the heavenly gift. If you compare them with the exact same phrases in other places in the book of Hebrews, it's unquestionably talking about a believer. In fact, let's look at them. It says, once enlightened. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Let's begin with that first one. Well, what's that talking about? It's talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination that occurs before you get saved, when the Holy Spirit of God takes God's word and the gospel message and he turns the lights on for you. I hope you've experienced that. If you've trusted in Christ the Savior, you have. You've probably witnessed to people and maybe the first time there were no lights on. Maybe the second, third, and hundredth time. But eventually, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but you continue to be faithful and sharing the gospel and all of a sudden they got it. Why? Because you're such an incredible uh, gospel presenter? No, if it took a hundred times, you're probably not that incredible. But it's because the Holy Spirit turned the lights on for them. Those who were once enlightened. It's when the Holy Spirit does that. So we can believe and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, Look at the second one. It's impossible for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now some would say, well, this just means that the people described in in these verses, they just briefly sampled God's grace without truly ever receiving Christ as Savior. The only problem with that is if we go back to Hebrews 2.19, that same word tasted uh, is used referring to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. It says in Hebrews 2.19 that Jesus tasted death for every man. And I can assure you, Christian, that our Savior did not just briefly sample death. Amen? He experienced it to its fullest extent. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And so the point here is that in trying to explain this away, it's a a little bit disingenuous for us to present these verses as describing anyone other than a genuine born again Christian. But if that's the case, well then doesn't this teach us that we can lose our salvation? No, no. Not, not, not at all. And, and I told you on Wednesday when I was um, doing the final preparations for this, if, if I get a little amped up, please forgive me, because I do get riled up about this. Uh, and here's why. Because I'm so tired. I'm tired of seeing Christians who God wants to live in victory over sin, and he wants them um, to be serving Jesus with joy and with power. And they're unable to because they're forever worried about if they're saved or not. 
It's a major obstacle for them. They lack assurance of salvation in their life. And I'll unite with any brother or sister in Christ who believes the gospel and preaches the gospel we find in God's word. I don't care what the sign says outside of the church as far as a denomination. Um, But for those who believe and who present a perverted gospel that allows the Christian to permanently fall from grace, who allows a Christian to, to lose their salvation that God gave them, I can't coddle that, church. I can't. And here's why. Because I already said, I have personally witnessed the damaging, the destructive effects it has uh, in the life of the believer who struggles with an assurance of their salvation. But I can't for an even greater reason. And I don't think anybody who believes that they could lose their salvation would ever say this or would ever hold to this. But it's what happens. The belief that you can lose your salvation, it is an outright assault. It's an assault on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I can't have it. Uh, It's an assault on the power of his blood. It's an assault uh, on the saving effect of his blood. To say that it's conditional on anything I do or that I I don't do, I won't. I, I cannot let them say that about my Savior and about his blood. Can we leave the book of Hebrews for just a moment? You don't have to turn there because I I hope and most of you probably know it in your heart. It may have been the very first verse that you heard when you trusted in Christ as Savior. But John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should what? Not perish. But have what? Everlasting life. Everlasting until I sin again and lose my salvation? Well, that's not very everlasting, is it? And Jesus himself says in John 28, or John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me, he's greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what kind of life does he give us? What did Jesus say there? I give them eternal life. Eternal until I sin again and lose my salvation? Well, that's not very eternal, is it? Whose hand are we in? Mine? Is my salvation in my hands and what I do and what I don't do? No, Jesus says they're in my hand and no one, nobody is able to snatch them out. They're in my Father's hand and no one, nobody is able to snatch them out. Nobody except me and my sin? Is that what Jesus said? No, he said nobody, including you and your sin. Now, y'all know Romans 8 and I hope you do, but you better keep that on hand for when the devil tries to get you to doubt the security of your salvation or when you hear some preacher or some Christian say that you can lose your salvation. Let me read, because I don't want to mispronounce or, or misquote anything. Romans 8, beginning in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, that's risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And we drop down to verse 38. And God says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should be case closed there. What can separate the Christian, the Christian, from God's love that's in Christ our Lord? 
when we've received Christ as Savior, what can separate us? Nothing. Not you, not your sin, um, not height, nor depth, not angels, not things present, not things to come, nor any other created thing. Are you a created thing? I hope so. Everybody here, you should fall under that category. No, nothing, no one, not you, not your sin. Even here in this chapter in Hebrews 6, in verse 18, we'll get there in a minute. Even here in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Hebrews 8, 12, God says that their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Which of your sins did the blood of Christ cover when you believed? Just your past ones up until that moment? All of them, right? They're all gone. He knew. He knew when he died for you. He knew when you received him as Savior. All of them. Then why these verses? Why verses four to six? And what is God trying to teach us here? Well, now we get to impossibility number two in the, in the second part of verse six. God's presenting a hypothetical situation here in an impossible, uh, it cannot happen situation. He does that often in his word, especially when he's really trying to stress a point or emphasize something. God is telling Christians especially in the original audience here, some who were being tempted to leave the faith and return to Judaism, he's telling them, you can't. It's impossible. You can't be saved any other way. Receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, following him, it's not one way of many to be reconciled to God. It's the only way. He's the only way. Now notice verse six. It begins with an if. If they should fall away, if. Now, are there people who profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior? You talk with them, they were, man, they were gung-ho, they were about church, and yet they were a Christian, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what happened to them? They're gone, I don't, you never see them again. Sometimes they're not even just, uh, you know, apathetic to our church, they're outright against it, and, you know, and they're, they're even persecuting the church and speaking out and saying God's word is, is, you know, is not worthy to be trusted in. I mean, are there people like that? Yes. There's apostates, God talks about them, and in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they wouldn't have, they no doubt they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be manifested that they were not all of us. Yes, there's apostates. There are um, people who, who profess Christ but never possess Christ, that have never truly been born again. They're Christians in name only, but, but that's not what Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is talking about. This, this passage is not about apostasy. It's not about somebody who simply professed Christ as Savior but never truly possessed him by receiving him by faith. It's not about that Christian, uh, you know, supposed Christian turning back. Don't pull it out of context. Where do we find this passage? Now, this passage is in the middle of an entire sermon. Hebrews, every chapter of Hebrews, the entire book. It's in the middle of an entire sermon about your growth in Christ about you continuing in the faith uh, in Christ that you first came to. Now, what is presented here is it's hypothetical. It says, if, if they, who's the they? Those described in verses four through five. If they should fall away, here's the second impossibility. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. They cannot be saved any other way than than the, the way, Jesus Christ. And here's why. The second impossibility, they... They crucify them to themselves again afresh, Jesus Christ, and they put him to open shame. Church, can Christ be crucified again? No, he cannot be crucified again. Once for all, 
that's what Hebrews says, Hebrews 10.10. By God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering, God has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so what God is teaching us through this very controversial passage is simply this. Christian, there is no turning back. There is none. This is not a you-can-lose-your-salvation-proof passage. This is a continuing-in-the-faith-that-you-first-came-to message, as it has been for six chapters now. Don't pull this out of context. Really dangerous and really dumb things happen when we pull God's Word out of context. I mean, we sing this truth as an invitation song often. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then what happens? No turning back. No turning back. Uh, for those who have truly received Christ as Savior, it's impossible. That's the message of the hypothetical situation in verses 4 to 6. And look, again, I get amped up about this because uh, th- there are some Methodists in the holiness churches and the free will Baptist denomination who teach that God's word uh, says that the Christian can lose their salvation. I won't have it. I can't. I-, I cannot have it, church. I can't let that assault on the powerful blood of my Savior go unanswered. I can't let Christians waffle and wallow, never living in the victory that God's promised them and provided them in the blood of Christ because they're always trying to figure out, am I saved or am I not by what I do or what I don't do? You're not saved by what you do or don't do. You're saved by what he did for you and your faith in it. Even if this passage did teach that, and I ask this for those who believe that, I ask him this all the time. There's a significant problem then in verse 6. Because what does it say? If you were to fall away, if you can lose your salvation, what does verse 6 say? Well, it's impossible for you, again, to repent. Now, I don't know a single one of them that believes that. If they believe you can lose your salvation, they believe, well, you can get saved just like that again. There ain't a one of them that believes that. But that's what God's word says right here. The clear gospel presented in God's word is this. Our salvation is secured by Christ's work for us. And I am so glad it is. Praise Jesus. It does not depend on what I do or don't do. I can't, I won't, and I don't have to depend on that. But, but by trusting, depending on only what Jesus Christ did for me, I can receive him as my Savior, be born again, and gain eternal life. This is important because this is a major gospel doctrine. We've given many biblical references for it already this morning. Often we call it the perseverance of the saints. Some people say once saved, only, always saved. That, that, that those who truly come to Christ, you are his and you are his forever. As Romans 8.30 puts it, if you have been justified, you are glorified. I'm like, well, I'm not yet. What God's telling us there is you're as good as glorified. As soon as you're saved, that place in heaven is reserved for you. Uh, as, as God tells us in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you, who, you who began a good work in you? Praise God, it's not me. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this is the truth. Our salvation, it is objectively secure. Woo, I'm so excited for that. Do you know what objectively means? Outside of me. My salvation is objectively secure because it's in Jesus Christ. And there's another concept related to this. And this is where our problem usually comes up. My assurance of my salvation, that's a lot more subjective, right? What I do, how I think, what I say, how I feel, the highs and lows, 
of any particular day of the week, that can all affect my subjective assurance of what is objectively true, that I am safe and secure in Christ. And and so in verses 7 to 12, God tells us that the salvation that is secured by Christ's work for us, it is evidenced, it's evidenced by our works. And we get an illustration first in verses 7 to 8 about how we're supposed to have a confidence uh, from crops. He uses an agricultural metaphor here. We see them often in God's word. Jesus talked about the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. God has Paul tell us in Galatians that we will reap what we sow. And so here in verses 7 to 8, God gives us this little agricultural metaphor so that we have confidence to continue in the faith that we have come to Christ for. He wants us to have, God wants us to have a bold, solid assurance of the secure salvation that Christ has given us. And he wants us to have that by our fruit, by our crops. Uh, Verse 7 says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, it receives blessing from God. What about the other ground? But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burnt. This is why God commands us to obey his word. Uh, Not only is it good for us, not only is it glorifying to him, but obedience to his word, living by faith in Christ, it gives us a confident assurance of the reality of our objectively secure salvation. A Christian will bear fruit. A Christian will grow. Now, the assurance that we have in our salvation and that dependent or that um, subjective uh, sense of, of its reality at any particular time, that, that can in a large part be affected by a couple of things. First and foremost, we need to cling to God's promises. If we really want to have a solid assurance, an assurance of our salvation that's solid as the reality, the objective reality of our, of our salvation, first and foremost, we need to cling to God's promises. And we're going to talk more about this later. Not our feelings, not our life experiences, God's promises. But verses 7 and 8 are really about that if we want a confident assurance of our secure salvation that will aid us in victorious Christian living, well, we need the Holy Spirit's confirmation of marks of being a Christian or for the fruit of being a Christian, the crops of being a Christian, that evidence of God's grace in our life. Here's some questions. Can you see growth since you've been saved? Do you understand God's word better now than you did when you were first saved? Do you have a desire for God's word? Do you have a desire to overcome sin in your life? Do you have a guilt, a guilt for grieving God? When you do sin, do you see progress? And so positive answers to any of those questions, they're going to be a powerful boost to the subjective assurance you have of your objectively real salvation. God desires that that we be diligent in these works that are evidence, evidence of us being saved. Verse 9, it's just one more evidence that verses 4 through 6 are not talking about genuine believers losing their salvation because look at what God calls them at the beginning of verse 9. He says, Beloved, every time you see that in Scripture, that is nothing but a reference to those who are born again. That's what God calls you, his church. And and God says there, uh, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. He's saying, I'm not even talking about y'all when I was talking about verses four to six. And that's what God's saying to you this morning. Beloved, I'm persuaded of better things of you. Things that accompany salvation. Things that cause salvation? Nope. Big difference there. 
things that accompany are, are the effect of your salvation, though we thus speak. And God wants these things that accompany salvation. Let's read verse 10. He says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love. Those are things that accompany salvation. Your works, so that they're an effect of you being saved. Your work, your labor of love, your ministry to the saints, and how, how you continue to minister. God wants those things to be evident, these things that accompany salvation. That's God's desire for you. It's, it's my desire for myself and, and for you. For this reason, verse 11, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. God desires that we be diligent in obedience to his word. And if we will, if empowered by his Holy Spirit, we allow God's word to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, living lives of obedience to Christ. Do you see what will happen? Look at what verse 11 says. You'll have a full assurance, not some wavering, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm not saved. No, you're going to have a full assurance of hope to the end. Now, people that believe like we do, you know, us once saved, always saved Christians, we're usually accused of throwing works out the window. No, we don't. Just put them in their proper place, in a biblical place, as, as an effect of our salvation, as evidence of us being saved, but never as a cause for it. A necessary effect, one that we should diligently work towards, is what God is telling us here. Why? Because they're a vital, a vital component of our assurance of salvation. Not the reality of it, but of our sense of assurance that we are saved. And verse 12 brings back a word from last week's passage. It says, don't be slothful. That's the same word in the Greek. The Greek word is nothroi. It was translated in last week's passage as don't be dull of hearing, right? Which meant don't be lazy. Don't be sluggish. And God uses it again here. Don't be slothful. No, be diligent. Be diligent. And then he kind of transfers into the next section here at the end of verse 12. He says, be followers of them. Be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Do you know why you can have a confident assurance in the security of your salvation if you have by faith received Christ as your Savior? Because it's salvation that's confirmed. It's confirmed by God's word. Yes, it's evidenced by uh, your works, but ultimately it's secured by Christ's work and it's confirmed by the word of God. And we're given two immutable uh, God's word uses that here. It means unchanging. Two immutable confirmations. I can know. Rock solid. This is confirmed for our hope. In verses 13 to 18, God calls these uh, ethnically Jewish Christians. He says, hey, I got an example for you. Look to this guy. He's one of your historical heroes of the faith. Look to Abraham. God made Abraham a promise. Did God keep his promise to Abraham? Oh, yeah, he did. Uh, what was required of Abraham to receive that promise? Look at verse 15. And so after he, after Abraham had patiently endured, what a great definition, two-word definition of faith. So after he had patiently endured, Abraham obtained the promise. Talking about the promise of Isaac and what that promise meant down the road, that Isaac would have a descendant, who'd have a descendant, who'd have a descendant, and ultimately there'd be one born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, God's promised Messiah, Savior for us. Let's go to verse 13. God says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, God swore by himself. 
Now let's jump down to verse 16. For men, verily, truly men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation. And it's to them an end of all strife. It seals the deal. There's no questions after that. And so these verses, first of all, um, verse 12 talks, or um, not verse 12, verse 13 talks about God. Uh, when he comes to Abraham and makes this promise, uh, he couldn't find anything to swear an oath on greater than himself. And then verse uh, 16 and 17 are talking about when God did make an oath, a promise uh, to Abraham. Now, we do this sometimes. We swear oaths, right? If you've ever been to court, you've got to swear an oath, right, Scott? Sometimes we put a hand on the Bible because we're swearing by something greater than ourselves. Well, can God do that? There ain't nothing greater than him. <laughs> That's what it's talking about in verse 13. God swore by himself. Because there is nothing greater than God. But then he also confirmed it by his word. He made a promise. He made an oath in verses 16 and 17 to Abraham. And we do that. I think when I went in the military, I had to do that. Some of you police officers, law enforcement, do you got to do that? Yeah, you got to swear an oath. Um, we swear by something greater than us. In verses 17 and 18, it gives us, these are our two sources of objective confidence regarding the eternal security of our salvation. First of all, God and God's character, he swore by himself. And then secondly, God's word. Christian, can I ask you this? Can you depend on God's word? Is it trustworthy? Can you depend on the God that word came from? Is he trustworthy? Well, then depend on him. Trust him and not ourselves. Two immutable truths, unchanging. It's a done deal. These two immutable things, it's impossible for God to lie, it says. And because of these, we should have a strong, a strong consolation. And then he wraps this up by giving us three illustrated consolations for our hope. Here's illustration number one in verse 18, our unchanging, dependable God and his unchanging, dependable word. Uh, they are a refuge for us. We're to run to that refuge so we can lay hold upon the hope set before us. A refuge, a fortress, this impregnable defense. Will you rest in him? Will you quit trying to work? Hoping you're good outweighs your bad? It won't. Will you rest? Will you run to this refuge and just go, Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, that is what saves, that is what secures me. When doubt comes your way, when the subjective nature of the assurance of your salvation, when that begins to creep in, will you run to God and his word, to this refuge he gives us? Illustration number two is in verse 19. God is, uh, God and his word, they are our anchor, an anchor for us. So when I sin, I sin, don't I? Say amen. When I sin and when I don't feel saved, where do I put the anchor in? My feelings? My life experiences? Monday afternoon when I've had no coffee? Those are really bad places to stick an anchor. Where are we supposed to put it? In God, in his unchanging word. Because my feelings change and life changes, but my God doesn't. And God's word doesn't. Illustration number three, the last one, verse 20. Jesus Christ is our forerunner. This is my favorite one. It's like a military scout type of uh, metaphor here. He goes before us. And where did he go? What's been the message since the very beginning of Hebrews? Where is Jesus right now? He's at God's right hand. The presence of the Father, he's reigning. That's where he went. He went into the presence of God after he resurrected from the dead. He ascended up there. We've, we've heard it over and over in six chapters. And he's our, he's our forerunner. Went into God's presence. And Christian, when you trust Christ as Savior, God's word tells us you're united with him by faith. 
So if he's there, where are you? You're there. You're there. And you know what's awesome about that? It's really hard to lack assurance of salvation when you're in God's presence. This is what he's telling us. Put your anchor there. Focus on your forerunner, Jesus Christ, who's there. So are you. Stay in that refuge. I don't want to go overboard, but look, I, hate, I truly hate this heretical doctrine of losing your salvation. I hate it uh, because my Savior is strong. Uh, he bought me with his precious and powerful blood. It's not dependent on me. He's washed me. He's changed me. He's cleansed me. And he has eternally secured me as God's child. If, you, if that's never happened, if you never come to Christ for salvation, man, do it this morning. Get that settled today. Know that you're his and forever his. But, but Christian, are you, are you tired of lacking the assurance? Has it, have you seen the negative effects it has on your life? Well, trust God. Trust his word. They don't change. Stop trusting why, what you do or what you don't do. Stop trusting in your changing feelings or your changing life experiences and start trusting in your unchanging God and his unchanging word. Yeah, commit to him this morning. If there's something that's like, well, I know why I lack assurance because I'm struggling with this in my life, confess it this morning. Give it to him. Say, Lord, I want you to work through me so I can have victory over this area and live, <laughs> just truly live in the victory and power over sin that the blood of Christ bought me. If you're struggling with doubt, be like that one that went to Jesus in Mark, asking Jesus to heal his son. Say, Lord, I believe. I do. Help my unbelief. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time of invitation, however God's Holy Spirit has called you to respond today, obey. Maybe you have an assurance. Praise God for that. Won't you thank him for that? Won't you thank him that you don't have to worry, you don't have to doubt, but you can trust completely in what his word has confirmed and what Jesus Christ has secured?